Hello there, audio friends. It's been a while since one of these, but them's the breaks. Things have been congested at this studio lately, and this hasn't left much time for extracurriculars. But I'm very excited to be able to broadcast today's episode, as it is with my mate Derek Blackburn from Quiet House Recording in Boston. Uh, Derek and I first met at a Mix with the Masters seminar in France, and like many of these meetings in the audio world, you realize you've bumped into each other online whether it's on forums or on social media and whatnot. Uh, Derek is a fantastic engineer, composer, DIY audio enthusiast slash builder. Uh, He's a secretary at AES, and there's probably a whole bunch of other stuff I'm leaving out there. Uh, We had a chat about his generation in the New England DIY music scene, which was really interesting. We also explored the framework of his home studio, Quiet House Recording, among other things, such as the Kurt Ballou and Steve Albini Isotope Conference, uh, also meeting and spending time with Brisbane hero Joe Malone, and also the future plans uh, for the next AES uh, convention. Uh, Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this is being recorded, and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. We pay respect to elders, past, present, and emerging. All right. Hey, Nick. How you doing? Good. How's it going? Not too bad. Sorry, I had some stuff patched in incorrectly. (laughs) It's okay. Kind of been a, been a while. Yeah, I don't think I've uh, talked to you since shortly after the uh, the seminar, right? 2014 was a seminar, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's close August. Time. Yeah, so it's almost the anniversary. It is. Yeah. Um. Cool. So I just wanted to un- wonder how you kind of started out in audio, and like you know how long you've been doing this, and where you found your feet, and kind of what got you into it. Oh, that's a good question. Going back to the beginning. Um, I was really blessed to have a community where there was a lot of music going on and uh, especially that there was music in the the school district. I think from a pretty young age, I had started playing instruments in like the uh, symphonic band in like middle school. In fact, actually uh, they started one of the schools that I went to started their band program in like third grade. Uh, so Jesus. I started playing like, yeah, <laughs> so I started playing a saxophone when I was probably nine or 10 years old. Um, Baritone or tenor? It, it was alto saxophone at yeah. first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, alto first and then everything else after that. Actually, a couple of years after I started doing that, I moved over to brass instruments. I played trombone and baritone and euphonium and things like that. You still play? But. Uh, I don't play now, no. No, I haven't played uh, brass instruments probably since I was 24, 25. So probably about 15 years. Yes, and every every year I mean to, you know, like I have a eight-year-old who is, um, you know, getting into music and she plays violin. And I keep thinking it's so cheap just to rent yeah. You know, rent a horn again, you know, and like try to get back into it. Um, but yeah, I was just very fortunate to come from an area um, in the States that had that uh, had those resources. So uh, 
I started off, you know, like a symphonic band. And then as you grew, you know, you would play in the, in the jazz band if you were interested, but in the jazz band, you could move on to like other instruments. Right. So I didn't always play trombone, but I could play bass guitar now, you know, which was like a huge deal. Um, because I had noticed this probably around like eighth grade. I had noticed that some, uh, of my other friends had already started like picking up the guitar or drums, you know, or, or things like that. And I was like, well, that's really what I want to do is I, you know, I want to like be in a band guitar music. Yeah. I was definitely into guitar music. I'm not, I don't know if the like references, you know, like kind of, uh make sense uh, or whatever but like it, you know they were talking about like the late 80s early 90s and it was just like a lot of the guitar music that i was into was you know it was like the end of hair metal and the beginning of grunge right so it was yes. kind of like i didn't want to be a shredder but i was definitely more on the punk side of things i just wanted to play like loud music <laughs> yeah you know being near Chicago and a lot of the bands that were making noise at the time I just you know I just really wanted to make loud rock music were you able to find like a, a group of friends where that was possible yeah uh, actually I, I I did um I think that a lot of people have the same kind of experiences you know there you kind of gravitate towards a small group of people who can kind of sort of play their instruments, you know, kind of sort of play guitar, you know, like let's try to write a song together or something like that. You know, like right around 13, 14 years old, we would meet either at my house or, you know, someone else's house and like just kind of try to emulate songs that we thought, you know, kind of were that everybody in our peer group would be into, right? So um, that's kind of how it, kind of how I, I started, um, you know, just like everyone is in a band in high school. Um, but the, the interesting thing was, uh, one of the members of the band got a task camp 424 for Christmas. And I was like obsessed with that thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I just like I I was like for you know forget this like trying to write songs and everything like this as a group like we should just try to like you know you know Zach takes us home or Eric takes us home or I take this home and we just like put down every single idea that we have and and see what we come up with just like a different way of kind of looking at composing music uh, especially putting our ideas down that's kind of become the norm now I guess. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, it's the the way that technology has, you know, not just like, you know, Pro Tools or whatever, but just the way that people make music and share share music now. There's so many points of entry that even it even surprises people who have been doing this for a long time that, you know, that most of my clients who are not who don't have any experience being audio engineers, they're writing all of their music in GarageBand. You know, and that used to be that used to be such a punchline, right? But the things that some people can do with GarageBand are just out of this world. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, the did that seem like a weird thing though at the time to like take a to well, take a full track home and it kind of felt like a cheap version of the real thing, right? Because yeah, it, in our 
small town. I grew up in a small town, Kankakee, Illinois, uh, about an hour south of Chicago. There were three studios, and one of the studios was run by this guy, Dave Sparger, and he had a Tascam 388, and a lot of the local bands would go over to his place and record on his 388. And, uh, you know, the 424 was kind of like the cheap version of, you know, of his setup. So it was, you know, it was, it wasn't mind blowing, but it was definitely kind of like, you know, the next level. It sounds good here, but it would sound even better if we went to Dave's, um, you know, and then like there was a digital recording studio that opened up where the guy was using a Mackie. I think like a 24 track Mackie into a, I don't know, into cakewalk or something. You know what I mean? Like it was, it wasn't pro tools, but it was something similar. And it was, I mean, it worked like we recorded at that place as well. And it sounded fine, but it wasn't, it wasn't really the same, you know, it's, it was just like the, you mean sonically, it was actually like brittle because of what digital technology was that at the time. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just definitely, at the time, like we didn't use words like, you know, recording a tape sounded warmer than recording a digital. Like the words were more like it just sounded thinner. You know, it just wasn't yeah. it just wasn't anywhere near what it sounded like when we were playing together, even though we weren't like the greatest musicians. Like you could definitely tell fairly uh so there was a fairly th- big difference. Do you think back then where digital was at back then, there was still a, a proclivity with digital to actually track things separately like there was a different workflow was already being developed with that technology um i you know i i wasn't as cognizant about it as i am now but uh you know i i remember making records then very similarly to how i make them now which is if we can get everybody to play together that is the you know that's the best place to start rather than like to build the foundation and put all the things together via overdub you know uh like that like if we can get a good solid everybody plays together foundation and then build on top of that that's going to be much better and that's pretty much how it was done back then you know especially with like the 388 you know it's like only eight tracks so we kind of recorded as much of the drums as we could all playing together and then Dave would bounce that down to maybe stereo or, and then we would do everything else. So, um, uh, yeah. I do, I do recall in those early days of digital trying to do the same thing, right. It's everybody in the room playing together. But I think that because of the two different formats, the approach was still much different, you know, it's like, we'll, we'll edit that later. You know, I can take care of that or we'll fix it in the mix. <laughs> Whatever. What was the name of that band? The band was called Nevenue. Was it long running or did you like continue it outside of high school for a period or? It lasted for about five years, I believe. And oh, that's pretty decent. Yeah. And uh, it lasted about five years and everybody kind of went in their own direction musically, you know, and personally. But essentially, it was like, you know, there were like two guys, two or three guys who were more into like jam band type music. And there's me and another guy who are more into like punk and louder music. And 
you know, we kind of clashed quite a bit in the last year or two. So it was kind of, you know, kind of doomed, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah, it you know, it ran its course. We actually, because of there was such a rich history, you know, in, in my hometown of, of bands. I mean, there were like 20, 30 bands um, at one point, I, I can recall. In 2009, I organized with the uh, public library in town a uh, show that literally brought back all the bands that you know where the members would they would come and do it literally brought back like 15 bands from like the 80s and 90s like um you know local bands and it was an amazing experience right because at first year 2009 it was yeah. 10 years ago. In fact, it was 10 years ago, This just this past weekend. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So oh, it's, it's great that you could able to find everyone again and round everyone up, and it's cool everyone was into it. Yeah, it was an, it was an absolutely amazing experience. But, like, the lead-up to it, just, like, getting on the phone, and, you know, there, there are a lot of the people that I knew and I had still been in contact with because they were my friends. But, you know, a lot of people who are maybe in the older bands having to call the cold call them and say, I know you don't know me, but like I used to go <laughs> yeah. see your band, like when I was yeah. a teenager or whatever, and we're doing this thing, you know, like quite a few of them, you, can, you really had to talk to them into it. Um, and it was, it was surprising too, because there were some people who had moved far away, but there really weren't that many people who weren't excited about it. You know, they were, relatively close you know they made time in their schedule to be a part of it and it was uh it was an awesome experience it was great was there like a label or two that kind of localized everybody into one sort of i I was just thinking like there was one label a real label in town which was called bright green records and that was run by michael boyd he makes music now still under the name Summon Image. And uh, he released like a bunch of seven inches for bands in the local area. And I think in the southern Chicago suburbs as well. I think I'm trying to remember. I think that he did. There was a really great band back then called Herbal Flesh Tea that I think actually <laughs> recorded that's at. A, that's an amazing name. Yeah. I think they recorded at Electrical actually. and uh, mm-hmm. And he released it. At any rate, uh, yeah, there was that label, and then there were, you know, a couple of vanity labels, uh, including my own, which is kind of how I really got started um, recording bands. Was uh, I was in a few of these bands, like in the college years, and and I had kind of had this vanity label, Quiet House Recording, where I helped out either monetarily or tried to like manage bands uh you know these bands were really pushing to go uh, up to chicago to play or in the southern suburbs to play more they really there was really like this push to kind of be more mobile play a lot more college shows and things like that so you know i kind of like made my own position right with uh bands that my friends were in and so uh the, the framework of that label was not not so much just like here we're going to release this and, and distro it it was more so like a complete encompassing resource to a band that was w- willing to work with you 
Yeah, that's that's correct. And I mean, I learned a lot, and you know, through the process of kind of being a manager for a lot of these bands, uh, booking shows, finding a studio, like managing budgets, um, you know, and like just kind of being there to handle things that came up that most bands would definitely be able to handle on their own, but they may not be motivated to kind of make a thing out of it. I wouldn't call it like a a career sort of thing, but you know, a lot of bands, their motivation kind of goes only so far and they need like a cheerleader, you know, or somebody to, to like psych them up and like get them excited about, you know, certain opportunities and things like that. And I think that was think, pretty much my role. Do you think that's true after like, there's a time limit with that too? Like as you get older or as even just the band gets older, you kind of need a bit more of a push. Yes, absolutely. But it's, you know, it's funny. It's a role that I still play now. Like when bands come in here to record, I'm still playing that same part with a lot of them. You know, I'm still like the cheerleader the motivator, right. uh, sometimes the agitator, you know, like sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes like that's needed as well. And it's just something that I've always done. And I've just been trying to keep it going as long as I possibly can. Um, well, it seems like a, a healthy function to, you know, if you, if you know labels that can, that would be interested to also, yeah, as you say, be a cheerleader, like help as much as possible with the resources that you have. It just seems like a, the way you should, the disposition you should have towards musicians. Yeah, absolutely. And when I when I was in that role, I was learning a lot about how records are how records were made, right? So, I was always in the studios in our small town. I had made some contacts with studios in Chicago and Champaign, um, and I had you know, essentially tried to get as much information out of those people as I could. Um, I bought a four-track recorder and recorded shows myself, uh, actually a lot of hardcore shows at first, yeah. you know, like living room and house shows and things like that. Yeah. And it was just a, like a natural kind of progression uh, until I realized that I actually needed a job like a real job in order to kind of survive sustain yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I'm so, I'm so interested by the, the DIY terrain in America, just physically like basement shows are just such a cool thing to me. Cause we don't have those houses in Australia. Like you don't have the basement. Right. Um, so house shows are hard because you're playing in living rooms always. Um, yeah. Or a garage or a garage. Um, but that's, it seems like the way that like a lot of houses built in America, um, with basements you can kind of get away with that absolutely and in a lot of the a lot of the cities especially like on the coasts have huge basements uh and i'm talking like high ceilings relatively easy access in and out you know they may have been built like around the turn of the century or whatever but at one point the roads or the streets had to be um they had to be raised you know, they like filled in the streets to raise them. So a lot of homes <laughs> and some, bizarre. yeah, it is, it is, isn't it? Um, yeah, a lot of homes have like basements with huge ceilings. So it's an interesting yeah. phenomenon. And what's really yeah. funny is it's like, it's so, it's so much a part of the landscape now. You know, it still is. A lot of the bands that I 
work with, they may play shows at venues, uh, you know, if they're going to New York or Philadelphia or DC or Baltimore, but more often than not, they're playing punk houses, you know, just like there were 15 years ago. I, I just have to say there, you know, there was a period of time where I didn't record as much unless my friends were really involved because I was working in IT. And although I never stopped playing music, I I kind of lost touch with the DIY nature of, you know, of bands and touring that I had experienced when I was younger. Yeah. So it was, you know, it happen. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I was just going to say, and then when I decided that I was going to quit IT and get back into recording, it, I was so pleasantly surprised that there was there were a lot of things that were still the same, you know, as yeah, far as yeah. DIY goes. Never yeah, really changed. That. I noticed that when I was working with hip hop and, and more like pop records and the commercial realm of music, I'm kind of blown away by the framework of how those all those interactions are and talking to managers and dealing with the terrain of not major labels, but labels that have a different kind of aesthetic, maybe. And then when I go back to the DIY world, it's like, oh, it's like just really comfortable again. It's say uh, everyone has just a bit more, I don't want to say friendly as if people outside of the, that community aren't friendly, but it's just, it's a bit more of like a, a comforting feeling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally get it because it, especially like since my studio is in my home, a lot of the, you know, at first when, when we, kind of renovated this place to be a studio i was thinking about after i made the decision to do it i was thinking about how i was going to feel bringing people into my home you know to to work and like what was my vetting process going to be and you know yeah, and things like I that actually thought about that that's really it's a good yeah. point <laughs> yeah and i and i was think i just i had the kind of a revelation like after i had you know signed contracts or whatever for the work that was going to be done in the house i was thinking like oh my gosh so i'm really gonna have to trust <laughs> a bit of the process to weed out you know people who i m- may not enjoy working with and really concentrate and focus on working with people who who's going to be worth the time and effort um, to work with. Are you, are you still pretty selective or you're kind of having, you're trawling from the same patch of water, it's the same kind of group of people? You yeah. Know, you have like annual return clients? Definitely have uh, clients that return every few months, every year. Um, I am definitely still, I'm definitely still searching people out to work with rather than relying on phone calls and things of that nature. I still try to go out to as many shows as I can. When I hear bands that I like, that I know aren't kind of attached to another producer or engineer in the area, I really try to convince them that, you know, I'm the best engineer for their project. And, you know, I try to sell my studio being in the house as a, you know, as a positive thing because we, you know, we have a little bit of, a little bit of land and we have a nice place and the whole um the whole house can be used as a studio you know i can throw up bikes in the living room or in the sun porch or down here 
or an isolation booth or where, you know, there's just a lot of stuff going on. So, yeah, I mean, you have a beautiful home and, and a, a studio that's actually acoustically treated and built professionally. It was, I guess when you go to a band at a show and be like, yeah, we can record it with the house. It kind of sounds like, do you have like an, an M box in, in your basement or like what's the go there? Uh, yeah. Like home, home recording boom has kind of um, instilled that, that paradigm in people's heads that like, yeah, it's just kind of whatever. But um, there's some ridiculous home studios like yours. Yes, there's. it's definitely true. I think that what I have seen over the last five years, especially, is people are much more focused on what they're called. They started calling them signature studios, right? Instead of home studios, because (laughs) essentially the studio doesn't look like your traditional studio. It looks like the brainchild of somebody who was like, I'm just going to put a place to record in this non-traditional space. Now we've been recording in basements forever, right? Like, I mean, that's the bands I've been in have recorded in basement. It's nothing new truly, but there is something to be said about a space where you don't feel like you're recording in like an amateur's space right yeah you know it's not it's no longer just a 424 in a room with moving blankets up on the walls and you know whatever like pillows (laughs) you know things like that it's now now people are giving a lot of thought to the aesthetics of their room so that it will look nice but it'll also serve many different functions yeah. How often are you, are you utilizing the whole of your house and not just the purpose-built live room? So mostly on projects that last more than a few days, because a lot of times, a lot of times the people who come and record are looking to do something in one or two days. And it's literally like assembly line production, right? We get everybody in here. We record everybody playing live with the drums. We take the parts that everybody played together as scratch tracks, and then we kind of build upon that because time is of the essence. But And they're wanting a certain amount of polish. That's correct. Can't book a week out due to budgetary constraints and whatnot. That, that's absolutely correct. Um, yeah. But if somebody comes in for three days a week, then I can plan the day. You know, and that's like, that's, that's the, that's the number one thing for me is if I can plan and organize for that, then I can make it a very, I can make it very special. Right. Um, But when I know that it's only going to be a day or two and like every minute counts, you know, it's guerrilla recording, you know, like you're coming in here, everything's set up and like, we are, we're like a freight train focused on the end goal. Um, so it's not as often as I would like it to be for sure, but it's not out of the ordinary where it would just sound better if we put an amp in the kitchen, you know, and face it out into the living room. Or if we, I've even put amplifiers or had drummers play drums out on the back patio, you know, for, for kind of that, uh, effect of the, uh, you know, the endless room effect, you know, for drums and things like that the completely open sound yeah do you you find you've 
made more interesting records textually when you have opened up to the house. I mean, an interesting band will be interesting regardless, obviously. It doesn't really matter too much, but do you find yourself being um, more sympathetic to records that where you have tracked in your house because it's not as uh, predictable? Yes, because those kind of records need less augmentation after the fact than if you... I really... I I wouldn't look at it. It's not like rushing, but it's like just definitely being focused, right? But with that... Documentarian. Right. As opposed to um, letting different subtleties and ambiences interact with each other and inspiring new tones and like, yeah, like the whole... The landscape of making the records obviously different when you have more time and are in an unorthodox uh, arena. That's absolutely correct. And the production just needs less augmentation when that's when that's happening. So uh, I definitely pushed for that sort of thing when we have the time to do it specifically for that, for that reason, because the, the look on somebody's face and the reaction that you get from them hearing like what they played in a different acoustic space than the one that they're in is pretty significant, right? You know, down here it's treated but it's, you know, it has a little bit of liveliness to it. And it's definitely a fun room to play in because you can hear each other. You know, it's not, you know, nine out of 10 rehearsal studios in this area, which are like literally concrete boxes, you know, eight yeah. foot, eight foot by 12 foot concrete boxes with no absorption whatsoever. So there's definitely a comfort in here, but there's also that kind of wow factor, you know, when you hear the differences uh, in the acoustic spaces uh, in the rest of the house. Yeah. I made my first record in a house in maybe 10 years, so since I was a teenager um, this year, and I was blown away by how good it sounds. Oh, um, yeah? Like, just everything that was good about the the ambience in the space and everything that was interesting was able to be captured. Whereas when I listened back to the records I did as a teenager, everything bad about the house you could hear, like everything that wasn't <laughs> positive was like on the record. And like as old I was, oh, I'm just wasn't that great an engineer back then because this house sounds fantastic. And I think if I had a, if you had a control room with accurate monitoring attached to any to a house you know it's a completely valid way to record i didn't have a good monitoring system at that house which made it harder but um yeah i mean i would love to record at a space like yours where you're able to utilize uh different ambient spaces but be able to be critical with your listening as well yeah definitely and you know it's it's just it's very interesting the way that this landscape has changed in the last few years so there is, uh, in my small town where I am, I'm in Bedford, Massachusetts, which is about 20 minutes away from Boston, right? Uh, so it's still the suburbs, but we're like on the other side of the highway, so to speak. We're, we're farther out from the suburbs than the actual suburbs. But in, in my town of 13,000 people, there are four studios. And in the belt around Boston, there's probably 20 studios. And I'm talking about studios that are either in people's homes, like mine, or they are commercial studios or some other type of private studio, Uh, you know, like where there's, it's just somebody who works in a niche 
industry in audio and they just have a studio and you know if you need somebody to mix in 5.1 like you go to this place right and so there's there's a lot and there's even you know there's like i don't even know how many studios are actually in boston because it changes every day but there's you know like five solid studios that have been there like you know for 30 40 years right and then there's all the smaller ones a lot now the the reason for that is berkeley college of music is here right so uh, that's yep, yep. that's makes huge uh, although that makes a lot of engineering work uh seasonal in a way because there's a lot more work when the students are here than when they're not here there's a lot of spillover uh because even though they have studios at berkeley um they all cannot be utilized at once by the students at all the students right so yep. there's spillover to other studios there's berkeley there's like 38 universities in boston you know it has the most universities i believe of any town in the or any city in the u.s really yeah and you can look at our state or you can look at our city and our state as a singular thing but really like it's really the region you know the region is called new england and it's uh connecticut rhode island massachusetts maine and new hampshire and vermont and you know we're talking about in in the range of 200 miles from boston there are an amazing amount of different types of bands and artistic creative people you know there is a lot of work out there for audio engineers but there's also a there's a you know there's a lot of bands and musicians so it's it's actually a really great place to be kind of in the center of it all because you know my studio is only about you know it's not not much to ask somebody to drive an hour and a half or two hours you know to record for a day or two somewhere so i get people from all over it's really great Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I've got to ask, how did the, um, I guess, seminar with Kurt and Steve uh, eventuate? Oh, my God. So, I, <laughs> so I, don't, I don't know how exactly to tell this story. So uh, I'm friends with the, I'm a member of the Audio Engineering Society. I'm the secretary here in Boston. And I'm friends with the executive chair. And he sent me a message one day that said, I've got a great idea why don't we have Steve Alvini and Kurt Ballou together and have them do a Q&A? I know Steve's going to be here for an event at Berkeley or Harvard, and Kurt has been waiting to do something with us for a while, so this would be, like, the perfect thing. I'm like, that's great. Let's do it. Um, you know, Kurt's on board. Like, you know, is Steve on board? Like, have you reached out to him or whatever? He's like, I was hoping that you would do that. And I'm like, sure. Um, but I know Kurt is actually there at Electrical Audio this week because I'm, you know, I follow him on Instagram and I know him and mm -hmm. I see that he's doing drums with Russian circles. So Kurt is there. Why don't you ask Kurt to ask Steve and see what he says? But I think Steve wasn't there um, while he was yeah, I remember doing this. I spoke to Kurt, like, because he was in Australia for shows uh, shortly after that time. 
and um, he was like, oh, yeah, I thought Steve was going to be on the back couch, like, you know, directing me, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, not there. And he wasn't even, he wasn't even in. Right. He was, he wasn't there. He wasn't present. Right. And I, I mean, but from our experience, that doesn't seem out of the ordinary for him. Right. I don't think no, that he, was, he would. Like, I think, I think Kurt was like blown away, but I was like, oh, why would he do that? Right. <laughs> yeah. Why would he be like a couch producer? Yeah. So I got to call him and ask him and he was like, you know, that's great. Yeah, let's do it. Just, you know, and the actual event and it's online. You've heard it, right? You've seen it. Yeah, no, I've heard it's great. Yeah, great. So the event, yeah. So the event went really well. It actually was our annual banquet, right? So we fed everybody and they had a great conversation. It was very funny and, you know, personal and, everybody kind of came away with it just kind of like, wow, like you guys should do this again. And soon, you know, like invite more people, like who else can we get here? You know? So it was really great for us as an organization, but at the same time, it was incredibly weird having the two of them at Isotope, right? The digital (laughs) plugin company and everybody at Isotope is great. You know, we've had events there before and they are very gracious and and helpful and they are a huge part of the audio community here in Boston. But I have to say that it was just very surreal to be there while this whole thing was happening, right? And then a couple days, or not a couple days later, but a few days ago, I get an email because I... I'm signing up for Isotope marketing emails. Like an email about their Spire studio. It's like record like Steve Albini. Have you seen this? Oh uh, yeah. That was, that was a very interesting article. Yeah. I didn't let's really leave, entirely understand it. Let's leave it at that. Right. Let's leave it. Yeah. it was very yeah. interesting. Uh, Do you think that was like correlated at all to the, Oh, it definitely, I think a connection was made. You know what I mean? I think a connection was made and I think they reached out to him and, you know, asked him if it was okay if they used his likeness. I'm sure that he was like, I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So that's that's great that you got all that happening. Yeah. Like how you get lumped into similar categories despite having different working methods and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, it's so funny, too, because, like, I associate Steve with DIY recording. I associate Kurt more with a DIY audio building, um, you know, because I know that he, you know, building pedals and, like, servicing his own stuff in his studio and everything like that. I'm, I'm curious for, I have a question for you. Like, does Australia have, like a AES convention or music Mesa sort of convention where like not only do these audio companies come together, but maybe there's like some sort of opportunity for DIY stuff for uh, recording engineers. Oh, no, not really. Not at all. Not not, not on like a non DIY level or DIY level. There's not really any kind of large conference or, or seminar. Um, there used to be um, at 301 in Sydney years ago, seminars with like lecturers would come and people would bring products and it was like a relatively small conference, but I never went and it was pretty small anyway. Um, but 
I know Audio Technology Magazine has like like a quasi barbecue slash seminar. I'm not sure if that's happening anymore as well. Oh, like a um, potluck, yeah. like a potluck, right? Do you remember the potluck audio conferences that they used to have? Like oh, I don't. Sponsor, sponsored by Tapa. That was if you yeah, okay. if if you look for that on YouTube, you'll there are many many lectures. Um, on audio recording, uh, the potluck audio conference. It, it yeah. the last year that they had it was like six or seven years ago, but it was it went on for quite a long time. Yeah. Well, the, well, the reason I asked you is because I'm very deeply involved in DIY audio building here. Um, not only have I you know built some of my own equipment here in the studio, but I, I'm part of a entity called Audio Builders Workshop and. Uh, and I got to spend a lot of time with Joe Malone from JLM Audio. Great guy. Especially, yeah, especially last year. And we're going to do it again this year as well. And I think that there are many, many brilliant people in our industry. But that Joe Malone is um, far above the He's rest. He's a genius. I mean, He's I, a the, genius. Is, the stuff that he comes up with, you know, that he posts every day. Like, it's just like, of course, somebody needs that. Right. I got, I've got, I have to tell you real quick, like at the AES convention, we have a lot of lectures, you know, throughout the seminar and this past year, Audio Builders Workshop got its first track. So we had, I think, six lectures uh, during the week. And one of them was with Joe Malone. There were a few other people uh, up on the dais with him and and they were uh equally brilliant you know but i think that they were a little underprepared yeah when it was joe's turn to talk about some of the things that he has done and some of the things that he's built for people he was just like so far beyond what i think anybody expected you know he he is just talking about how like people come with him with a problem like i need a power connector to fit this module from 1964 that's not made anymore but it has like these specifications and i have no idea you know yeah like he's just and he loves it built, he you, just you knows. go to the office you just mentioned one like particular niche console or or whatever it is from you know 10 20 years ago and he's like oh yeah i had a few of those going and he'll talk ear off for like 40 minutes about it and about all these weird oh little adventures of him driving out into the bush to to work on one and then you know, his car breaks down and then, you know, it's just, he's, he's, he has a story about being a technician for so many years and he just knows everything. He knows everything about everything. Yes, he does. Yeah. He tells the best stories. Yeah. <laughs> he tells the best yeah. stories. And like, so is he near you? Yeah, it was just like a 10 minute drive. I used to live around the corner from, I actually live around the, oh I live around the corner from his house because I, you know, drop and pick up gear from there sometimes. But um, I live pretty close to his office brisbane's pretty small you can drive across brisbane in like 20 minutes um oh. so everyone's kind of close to each other really that's really great that's really great yeah but his um the, their offices are, are are crazy um there's just you know shelves and shelves of of pre-built 500 series stuff and and they don't do like heaps of rack gear anymore because no one's not many people are buying it as much um and there's just weird stuff like count the city council will have him uh put in like 500 10 inch speakers at like a stadium but they have to be fi- they have to be fireproof and titanium and like uh, just weird specifications and they just know to call Joe because he'll actually do it. He'll design something like within a day that's like perfect. 
stuff yeah. like that. I mean, I, actually, on that topic, he's actually going to um, uh, use that design to get a little like Auratone, like a, J- a JLM Auratone um, speaker. Oh, that's yeah, great. So I think that's um, people will be really into that. It'll fit right in with his PPM meters. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Have you got anything coming up that you're really interested in or that you're excited about? Um, yeah. So our convention is happening again. The AES convention is happening again in New York City. And uh, I'll be there representing Audio Builders Workshop. And this year we are, we've gotten like approval for soldering stations. So every day, uh, I think we're going to have like three people a day actually building gear and showing people how easy it is to build. It's fantastic. What sort of kits are you thinking of having? Well, I'm sure that we'll do a JLM audio opto compressor. Brilliant. Probably do a Cappy um, preamp as well. I'm 100% certain that we'll do some microphone from mikeparts.com. And then whatever the new, I, I'm not sure if it if they're going to announce it, but there's probably going to be a new 500 series module from DIYrecording.com. And I'm sure that we'll build that as well. But the reason we're doing this is because we sent somebody to Music Mesa back in April and they had like this huge DIY audio paradise. I mean, it was like the size of the mix with the masters booth at these trade shows. It was huge. (laughs) And there was like all of these DIY audio companies from all over Europe and Asia there. And they were just like, everybody had soldering stations. Everybody was making gear. You know, I know I Yes, absolutely. Like the representative that we sent there, his name is Chris Kincaid. He was blown away by how different it was than AES. And I think that we convinced AES that the people want more of this sort of thing, you know, because... I always use this analogy that I think is dated now, but it's like nobody alive right now thinks about how to program a VCR. You know, yeah. that's like a yeah. thing. That's a thing that is like in the past and it was a joke, but like now the way that people have bent technology to meet their personal needs is, you know, it's bespoke for a lot of people. Like it's, you know, it's, you know, I don't know anybody else who runs their studio the way that I do or uses technology, studio technology the way that I do. And then I go into a studio in Boston and I see somebody else who's doing something completely different. You know, yeah. I mean, there's people who are doing the traditional thing, but there are so many people out there who are using the technology that we use to make records in ways that you just can't fathom until they show you and you're just like i can't believe that i've been doing it my way all this time yeah i, can't I need believe to your, do it your, your brain works <laughs> in a specific way that you've found that out especially on your own too that's, yes. that's what's more interesting that like i'm gonna learn off the internet i'm just gonna do this and then the results i get at is just gonna be so different and it's gonna naturally yes. occur yeah and it's very difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff as they say yeah because there are so many people out there who are brilliant men and women in our industry who are brilliant and they have something to share 
and show you a different way to make records. But there's also this mentality of like, all I got to do is make a bunch of videos and put them on YouTube. But it's like regurgitation of the, you know, myths of audio that we've debunked over the last 20 years. And it's so hard to like, you know, get to the really good stuff out there. Uh, but I think that, and I, I know what this sounds like, right? People have to come to these conventions, you know, or they have to find their own, uh, find their way to, you know, put their own thing together, you know? Like you said, there's not really anything like this in Australia. Like it's going to be at this place and this day. And like, if you want a table, it's, you know, like $20. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. everybody converge on this place, <laughs> yep. you know, and like bring your projects with you and mm. show us, you know, and uh, the more people who come to these conventions and see that this is like another way of doing things and it's how customizable it is and how easy it is. It's easy to learn how you'll make a lot of mistakes at first, but it doesn't take long to kind of understand the basic principles and be able to do pretty much anything you want with them. Well, what you're doing at the events that at these events is influential on a parabolic level and it's a feedback system where it affects people and then who they work with and it kind of just spreads and exchanging ideas and just getting people invigorated into just not just building audio but just being interested in audio it's a really useful utility and i think you're doing great things by being part of it and pushing it as hard as you can thanks i i'm trying definitely (laughs) definitely i love it Uh, i should start work soon but um, it's been really, really great talking to you, and um, hopefully we can keep chatting. That's right, because it's it's not nine p.m. there, right? Nah, it's it's, <laughs> it's it's eleven. So I got someone coming in a sec. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, thanks so much for talking, and um, yeah, we'll we'll have another chat again soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, it's, it's been great. Too easy. Have a good one. All right, I'll talk to you later. All right, bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. Uh, I just want to thank Derek again for coming on this podcast. It is much appreciated. If you're wanting to reach out to Derek, you can through his website, uh, quiethouserecording.com. Um, I would advise, though, anyone that's into audio uh, or studio stuff, you should definitely follow Quiet House Recording on Instagram as uh, it's very, very interesting and um, also very funny and uh, just a really... One of the great reasons for social media's existence. Uh, Great. Thank you for tuning in. Bye.